Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga and the creator of the Momentum Magic Method, showing you the way to becoming a confident teacher who seamlessly shares cues and easily creates sequences, whose classes feel like events, who understands anatomy, and who shares their passion in a unique and authentic way. On the podcast, you'll hear anatomy lessons, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. In addition to the podcast, follow me on Instagram and TikTok for daily videos on teaching topics. Thanks for taking the time to listen today. Let's get into the episode. Hi there. Welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 238. So I am recording this on Friday, April 28th, 2023. This will go live on April, I'm sorry, May 1st. Whoa, May 1st, 2023. This will go live. So you're listening that day or anytime thereafter. Today's a special episode. I have a really amazing guest, Josh Landis. Uh, Josh is uh, someone who was on the podcast a couple of years ago, and he is just such a wealth of knowledge on all things physical movement, but really uh, from a higher level, the embodied experience. And when you listen to this episode, my guess is you're a yoga teacher, although you could be perhaps in another discipline. Um, If you are a yoga teacher, you're going to get such a really good blend of both the physical the anatomy, the physical experience, functional movement, uh, anatomical references, as well as references to the nervous system, the limbic system, the impact of the nervous system on muscles, the effect of trauma and other uh, psychological beliefs and self-limiting beliefs and how they manifest in people in terms of pain and limitations in movement, we cover it all. Um, Josh is someone who I met years ago. Uh, I've never actually met him in person, but I was referred to him uh, as an expert in this area. And I'm so glad that we had an opportunity to connect on social media and I had him on the show years ago and having him back now. What was the catalyst to inviting him back on is he recently posted some case studies on his Instagram page. And I was so intrigued by the case studies that I wanted to have him on the show. So I want to tell you what his Instagram handle is because it's really helpful either before or after, probably after you listen to this episode to go take a look at his Instagram page follow his page and take a look at the most recent posts about the case studies. His Instagram handle is integrated strength training, but it has um, not hash marks. It has underscores. So integrated underscore strength underscore training and give him a follow over on Instagram because you're going to get a lot of really amazing content that is applicable to our work as yoga teachers, as we look at people moving on the mat, and as we wonder about the different things we might see, the different expressions of the poses we might see, all of what we go into today in this episode, will touch on some of those things. Josh is an integrated body worker and movement coach. He has his 
BS in kinesiology. He's a licensed massage therapist. Uh, he is a uh, personal trainer. He has a number of other certifications in his uh, in his background. He's experienced in active release techniques, craniosacral therapy, intuitive energy work, neurokinetic therapy, massage, proprioceptive, deep tendon release, and yoga tune-up. And yoga tune-up is uh, run by Jill Miller, and she was actually the teacher who connected me with Josh. So having said all that, you know, obviously someone who is very experienced and very well-versed in this area, and I'm just so honored to have him on the show. So with that, we're going to go right into that conversation, myself and Josh Landis. Here we go. Hi there. Hey, how are you doing? How are you? Not bad. I'm just trying to put together a few notes here. Um, just so I can kind of off of memory. Yeah. Have a, few more, a few more things to share as far as case studies go, but. Um, awesome. Yeah. Well, it's so great to see you. I am not in my studio, but I see you are in your office slash yeah. treatment space because yeah. I see the stuff behind you there, which mm -hmm. is so great. Yes. So, and it's great to see you. I, you know, I forgot to look to see when we did an episode before easily over two years ago. Oh yeah. I was going to say it's been at least a few years, I would say. Um, yeah. and I've kind of been MIA just in social yeah. media in general lately. So, um, yeah, I saw yeah. you posted something about doing a comeback and I was like, yes. And yeah. so I, yeah. I get sometimes Instagram feeds me stuff and I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. And mm -hmm. are you still in Colorado? I am. Yes. Okay. Got it. So you didn't physically move in this time. No, no. Okay. Just, uh, just more so, um, my office space, I moved in the last, oh. uh, four months. So I'm kind of relatively new into this new space, just settling in. It's a temporary okay. space. Um, subleasing from a chiropractor friend of mine, just an office space, but going to be moving into a new brand new built space in like a year and a half or so. Nice. So just kind of biding my time until then. Awesome. I will also <laughs> apologize. I'm in the middle of making the bed. So that's why they're oh, you're good. behind me. I just looked behind me. I'm like, usually I have a very pristine background, but today. Yeah. No judgment. No judgment. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so I thought a great place to start, especially because I'm sure I'm always getting new people to the podcast and they didn't listen the last time you were on. So I thought it might be fun to just start with having you share a little bit about who you are and your background and who you help. Sure. Totally. So, um, well, the name of the podcast will suggest, but my name is Josh Landis. Um, I'm a body worker primarily, um, as far as licenses go, I'm a, just a licensed massage therapist and, um, I guess a strength and conditioning specialist. Um, so do a lot of training, um, and rehab stuff kind of combined and a lot of like on the table therapy work. And so when I first got started with doing all this stuff, I started off kind of just as a, I would say a general run of the mill personal trainer with just kind of a particular emphasis slash interest in more of the, um, kind of restoring function, helping people get out of pain approach more than just kind of like losing 10 pounds or getting jacked or that kind of thing. So that was always more my emphasis. And then because of that curiosity, I started to just kind of go down the rabbit hole, learning different techniques and, um, getting into the world of applied kinesiology and how to utilize that within my practice. Um, and since then I've just kind of been on a journey to learn more and more 
effective ways of helping my clients heal, whether that's working with the physical body and doing tissue work and, um, you know, subtle manipulations of like soft tissue and stuff, or even to some extent working with joints um, and using kind of that in combination with movement, you know, progressions and kind of just, uh, just what I would consider solid quality rehab. Um, and then also diving into the world of like the limbic brain and emotional pieces and how those things are fitting and are feeding into a client's symptoms, um, and kind of using my, my, uh, amalgamation of techniques specifically with kind of the applied kinesiology stuff, using muscle testing to gauge how their nervous system and how certain parts of their physical body are responding to different stimuli. And so that can be, you know, anything from doing a particular movement or, um, me cueing them into a certain part of their body or taking them through like a breathing protocol or something like that, or even something as simple as just having them kind of consciously think about or sit with kind of maybe a bigger kind of like emotional stress or maybe that's going on in their life. Um, and just kind of being able to appreciate that all of those things could be contributing factors to what their symptoms are and having the tools to address each of those things. And if I don't have the tools, then at least knowing, you know, how to, how and who to refer out to, who I think might be the most you know, um, uh, beneficial for what they're going through at that moment. So mm-hmm. that's generally kind of how I work with clients and how I got to where I am now. And so I would just kind of consider myself, uh, I, I mean, there's all kinds of healers, um, but I guess it's just kind of, I'm in the healing space and I'd have a unique approach of how to work with people. But I would say movement is kind of the lens ultimately that I'm looking through everything with, because I believe that our ability to feel safe in our bodies and to trust our bodies and to have a good, loving, nurturing relationship with our bodies. Um, and then being able to go out in the world and to use our body and to do stuff and to have fun and go adventure and, and, you know, do all, do all these things is paramount to our, our well-being as human beings. And if we can't feel safe in our body, then no matter what we're doing, um, we're not going to really be able to heal fully. So I feel like movement is kind of that nice interface to be able to appreciate not just the physical stuff, but also the mental, emotional, spiritual stuff that that's, um, this is kind of dragging us down in our lives or creating symptoms or making us not live the life that we want to live. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love all of that. And I kind of, I, I hear when you were talking about movement, I kind of think of the movement as the 3d expression and there mm-hmm. could be other things going on behind the scenes and it sounds like you focus in part on the 3d representation of movement but you also get into the other aspects i mean there were so many other things i was trying to jot down notes to make sure to ask you follow-up questions about each one you know even when you think about something like the limbic brain or the nervous system or trauma in the body or breath work, all of that isn't necessarily stuff we can see when we have somebody on the yoga mat or work with someone in the gym or have someone in physical therapy, but it must have an influence, right? Totally. And I think one of the missing pieces there is that we kind of compartmentalize all of those things a lot of times, right? When we go to seek treatment, just like, for example, let's just say we've got like a, a knee thing our first assumption and kind of the first line of defense, I think, and it's logical and it's usually the way I'll start with somebody, but like, okay, let's appreciate the physical structure. Is there actually damage in the knee? It's meniscus wonky. Is there osteoarthritic changes in the knee? Um, you know, things like that. But then once we go beyond that, a lot of times, or not even beyond that, but in addition to that, um, there are other pieces at play and we can get into some of how those things will kind of show up a lot of times with a client presentation on the table, but 
Um, it's not to say that the physical components of the body and, and working with fast stuff isn't important or aren't important. It's just that there's often more, especially with chronic pain, there's often more to the, to the puzzle than, than just the physical stuff. So yeah. Yeah. And not I having the ability to, or sorry to interrupt you, but to not have like the ability or the techniques or like a, a process to actually be able to suss those things out. Right. So again, mentioning how we compartmentalize them. We don't necessarily a, appreciate that the two can be related, but then also, even if we do, not a lot of practitioners are out there right. able to address both. It's like, okay, you, well, if there's, if there's, you know, trauma stuff, go work with a psychotherapist and to what extent that psychotherapist may or may, may not be able to connect the dots to their physical pain, right. you know, may not be there and vice versa with like the body work of the trainer, the, the movement person, they might not have, even if they have an appreciation for how the mental stuff can play a role, they might not have the tools in their toolbox to address it. So I like mm -hmm. to kind of uh, fill that role or that niche of like, um, being able to bridge the gap a little bit for clients. And, um, I think that's a, a, a huge missing part in how we treat people, how we get people better. Um, and ultimately how we help them heal fully. So, yeah, I mean, I love all of this idea of when you said niche, I had written nuance because I sort of feel like as I'm listening to you, there is this nuanced approach to working with someone when it's not just looking at the 3D, it's also appreciating all the other pieces that you mentioned. And it does really sound like you're filling this sort of, I kind of feel like this sort of untapped space where there are multiple disciplinary approaches to working with someone. And I heard what you said before about if it's you know, a particular approach in an area where you feel a little bit bumped up against your professional code of ethics, you would refer them out. However, you are appreciating from a holistic perspective that this person maybe has some trauma that would be helped by having a specialty referral and also to continue to see you and you are still seeing them as a whole person. Totally. That's, I think, where the magic happens for, for most clients healing. So, yeah. Yeah. So how, this is a little bit of like a marketing question. How would someone find you or how do you, how do your clients find you to know that this is something that is in your approach or are you getting sort of general referrals for the 3D stuff? And then you kind of go into these different areas with someone. That's a really good question. Actually, generally speaking, I don't really do a whole lot of marketing. Um, and so most of my client base and clinical practice is really just based on word of mouth referrals. Um, people get good results. They tell their friends, they tell their coworkers, et cetera. Um, that's one of the things I've kind of struggled with, with the social media game is like, how do I actually kind of explain this in a way that clicks with people and, and makes sense? And how do I ethically like showcase this kind of stuff? Cause a lot of times when I am diving into you know, a particular case with somebody, I don't want to, I certainly don't necessarily want to like go through a session with somebody on camera, for example, because there's a lot of stuff and even just like an energetic dynamic that gets created where now all of a sudden you have an audience and now the, the sense of safety for that client might be compromised. What might show up in a session might change because of that, um, because of that dynamic. Um, so being able to figure out how to market, it's always been a little challenging for me. Um, but yeah, word of mouth generally, and people will, uh, I work uh, my clinic that I work with with my colleagues for, uh, called Denver pain and performance solutions. And so pain and performance, I would say are probably the two avenues that people seek us out through. 
um, any type of pain, generally speaking, but also a lot of like spiritual, emotional kind of stuff. We, a lot of my colleagues do even deeper level, like hypnotherapy work and things like that. And so, um, people are looking to work with us through all sorts of lenses, but I would say the most common one for me typically is chronic pain cases, mostly because, um, again, kind of filling that niche again, a lot of clients come to see me because they've already kind of been through the ringer with traditional therapy. They've kind of done their PT, right? They got that, saw their doc, got an MRI, got prescribed, you know, uh, six weeks of PT three times a week doing their copay thing. They go through the, the process of doing all their PT the MRI is like, all right, you're good. You're clean, but they still are in pain, but they're discharged from PT. And now they don't know what to do because they haven't actually healed from what they were going through. And in order to go through the whole process, again, they have to go back to their doctor, redo an MRI, like the whole, our whole medical care system is a mess. So I'm not going to get into the details of that, but a lot of times people find me because they're just out of answers. They've seen, you know, 15 different therapists, who say there's nothing wrong with them or they can't figure it out or they gaslight them in some way. Oh, it's because you're overweight or, Oh, it's because of your whatever. So, um, a lot of people I work with end up being kind of more difficult cases and the cases that a lot of other folks haven't been able to help them figure out. So that's kind of also a, a big part of my, my clinical practice, but, and I also have, you know, just the regular folks who come in and say, yeah, I tweaked my knee this weekend playing, you know, pickleball and can you just do some stuff? And, those clients are easy to be honest, like one or two sessions, they're good to go. They're back to normal and they're on their way. But the chronic pain cases are the ones that take maybe sometimes several weeks, if not months. And for certain clients, they're actually, they've actually been working with me for years. And so, and we've worked through all kinds of different things. So some people just want to see me every now and then some people want to work with me on a consistent basis. Um, so I've got regulars and people who are just kind of, maybe I'll see them once a year or something like that. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. And I could definitely see, I, I can imagine, and this is again, more of like a business discussion that I'm sure there are people out there where if you could sort of generalize some of the experiences of your clients, there would be people, even if you were never going to see them hands-on who might have so many revelations just from hearing that there is an approach that could potentially help them. Um, it reminds me, I had a, um, a physical therapist, Libby Hinsley that I interviewed and she focuses on hypermobility and she went through the whole thing. It, uh, it was her and maybe her daughter also a whole treatment protocol where they weren't calling it hypermobility and they were calling it all these different things. And she was having symptoms and maybe it was, she was telling me as she was growing up and similar to what you're explaining, this sort of bouncing from one practitioner to another and not getting the answers and still having the symptoms and just not seeing any end in sight and yeah. having all of the challenges of the insurance and medical system overlaid on top of it. All it tends to do is increase the person's stress, which is probably going to increase their symptoms. Uh, and then they're probably set back, not definitely not set forward, moving forward. Yeah. That's often the case for a lot of people. So yeah, I've I, I really enjoy actually working with the challenging cases. Um, and I can't fix everybody. I mean, that's obviously a thing, right? Not everybody's either fully ready to dive in to what their body's kind of guiding them towards. I tend to think just the pain in general, um, whether it's chronic, generally more chronic, but even if it's acute too, um, if it's not injury induced, then it's usually your body's way of just trying to get your attention. And 
if you think of it that way, like, okay, what is my body actually trying to cue me into or bring my awareness to? And most of the time, kind of culturally, we think of pain as something that we're just, we need to get rid of because it means something's wrong. And, you know, you hear, especially on like social media posts, so much of the, the emphasis now is like finding the root cause, but like, you know, the quote unquote root cause can be so many different things. And, and it can also be a combination of things, right? It might be just some, a behavioral change or simply modifying your exercise program a little bit, but it could also be something, you know, some severe structural damage that you weren't aware of that you actually, you know, an MRI or an X-ray is going to show you. Um, or it could be, you know, a combination of all of those things. Plus maybe, um, I mean, everybody needs to some extent, if you're a human being, everybody needs body work or, or some kind of healing modality every now and then, at least I think just as kind of general maintenance because life just beats us up. Um, our ability to actually like find the source, um, depending on who you ask, some people are going to say, it's always going to be this biomechanical piece that you're not accounting for, or, um, or whatever. To me, I think ultimately if without getting like too spiritual, I think this is just my belief system, but no matter what you're going through, the root cause is almost always going to be some kind of journey of the soul kind of thing. That's again, that's my interpretation of things and kind of my own experience in my own body and just having worked with lots of clients over the years. Um, so yeah, <laughs> kind of losing my train of thought here, rambling a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. no, that's, that's okay. I, I'm kind of wondering as you're talking, especially if you look at someone with chronic pain versus like the weekend athlete or someone who has clearly like an orthopedic issue or strain or sprain or inflammation or something that's really in that 3D zone. If you have somebody who maybe has been in treatment for a while and still has whatever symptoms they have. I'm guessing that when they first see you, you have a look at MRI results and x-ray results. You're kind of going through that differential diagnosis to try to like just reassess probably what they already have been told. But here it is, that person sitting in front of you, they still have whatever symptoms they have. And I know that that can obviously vary. So where do you go then? Like here you are in this space as a practitioner who appreciates the nuance, who sees the whole person, who definitely has a spiritual side, who goes into all these different areas that probably traditional medicine is not going into. So what's your first step when you look at all the objective stuff and there's nothing really screaming out at you? Yeah. Where do you go then? <laughs> well, that's a really good question too. I would say that um, whether or not this stuff is kind of coming from more of a structural thing versus other stuff, it's almost always going to still manifest physically in some way. And that's why I think movement and working with the body is such an awesome interface is because, um, you know, again, let's just kind of go back to like a knee example. If their knee is, is experiencing pain, I'm obviously going to appreciate, okay, what muscles are acting on the knee? What, what structures need to be kind of addressed there? If there's nothing that's images are really showing, but they've got a lot of pain, let's just say like the patellar tendon from a biomechanical perspective, I know that the main muscle groups that are going to be feeding into creating mechanical stress on the patellar tendon is going to be like the rectus femoris, for example, right? It's one of the primary quad muscles and a hip flexor. So it crosses the hip and the knee. And that usually has a lot of influences on something like the patellar tendon. And so, um, appreciating the anatomy and the biomechanics is step one, right? So, okay. If I know that if they're getting patellar tendonitis or if they've got some issues going on there, I'm going to assess the functionality of 
their hip flexion, of their knee extension, of their hamstrings, of their ACL, PCL, meniscus, like all of that, I'm going to do kind of a combination of like orthopedic testing as well as, um, you know, some more like AK based uh, muscle testing kind of stuff and just see how things are responding first. And more often than not, things are not going to be functioning optimally, right? So either they're going to be like really hypertonic locked up muscles where just the muscular response is such that the muscles have no ability to inhibit and they're just holding on for dear life to try to protect that knee. Um, or they might have a lot of weakness and the muscles surrounding the knee aren't providing the support that it needs. And so it's creating mechanical stress right on the area. So in this case, I would evaluate, you know, which muscles and things are not responding well to very stimuli. And then that kind of serves as like a backdoor sometimes as we go through the testing protocol, it's hard to explain. You kind of have to almost experience it and see it, but through that muscle testing protocol, it will allow us to kind of find the deeper sources of what's going on. Uh, there's a caveat there in, uh, such that I'm also very cognizant of meeting the client where they're at with their belief systems, right? So I have my own belief systems of kind of how I see the body and stuff, but I also know that, you know, especially like really certain like analytical type of brains where they're not necessarily very spiritual or anything like that. They are married to this idea that it's a physical piece. I'm going to meet them where they're at. So I'm going to address things at that level. I'm going to have that conversation with them at their level of understanding and the way that they see things. And a lot of times doing that to me, at least instills confidence and trust um, and a sense of safety. And that is the most paramount thing in any therapeutic relationship is that the client has to feel safe first, because no matter what modalities I'm using, if they don't trust me, they're not going to respond nearly as well to whatever I do than if they do trust me. So that's kind of step one is seeing the big picture. I I'm always there, but like my level of awareness is not necessarily going to be the same as the client's level of awareness of their own body and what's going on or just their understanding of things. And so, um, meeting them where they're at in that, in that way is, is a priority for me. And then again, a lot of times going back to that knee example, okay, so rectus femoris, I know biomechanically, it's going to create some stress on that patella tendon. Let's assess what's inhibiting or what's affecting the brain's ability to get that rectus femoris muscle to, to fire, to contract well, and to, um, relax well. And a lot of times, that's going to be coming from stuff like, you know, this instability of the sacroiliac joint or um, how the foot is interacting with the ground in their gait cycle or, you know, things like that. And a lot of times just going after a few like ligament corrections in their ankle and or their pelvis can, can do a lot to restore the brain's ability to get that muscle back on. And all of a sudden the, the area that they're experiencing pain, in this case, the patellar tendon subsides because the brain's now able to send based on the corrections we did better signals to that muscle. That muscle is now, you know, um, managing kinetic energy better and these soft tissues, the connection or the attachments, the origins, insertions, tendons, ligaments, those tend to be where we feel the pain a lot of times if muscles are not responding well. So that's just kind of one example. Um, and again, we can get into more specifics as we go, but yeah. Yeah. Okay. And as, as you were talking, I can imagine you're probably also like I'm thinking about the impact of like lifestyle and posture and nutrition and overall health. Like, is that part of that initial conversation you're having with someone to sort of get an idea? I mean, certainly if someone's presenting with some kind of patellar tendon syndrome, there's potentially some impact if they're running a lot or if they're carrying heavy loads or squatting a lot or whatever it is. So 
you know, does that come up and have you sometimes uncovered like, because sometimes I wonder if the medical physicians even ask those questions. I mean, it kind of depends. I think if you have a general practitioner versus like an orthopedist, although that's probably a generalization, but my guess is that has an impact and can potentially sometimes hold the secret to what's happening. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, the initial intake, there's always a history. There's always, okay, let me get an idea of what this person does kind of on a daily basis. What does their general routine look like? What do they do for a living? What do they do recreationally fitness wise? What's their sleep and diet look like? You know, kind of just like the basic health stuff. That's always important to know. Um, obviously we know that if, if someone's coming in, they're really trying to get super hyper-specific focus on a pinpoint issue, but they've got all this other, just like really basic low hanging fruit. That's usually a good place to start. Um, and that can reduce the overall stress quite a bit. Right. Um, so yes, I'm accounting for those things for sure. And sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, it can be as simple as just like, we need to do a little bit of a lifestyle tweak, or if you are a recreational fitness person or you like to run or whatever, it's like, okay, what do we need to do then to either adjust, you know, your, your routine or change your, your movement protocols a little bit. Or if you are something like a runner, for example, and you're training for running, but you're doing all the stuff that doesn't really seem to be helping. How can we just tweak things to, to adjust your training program to accommodate that specific activity that you like? What's the low hanging fruit with running, for example, that's impairing your ability to actually tolerate the stress of running and how do we build that up through training? Um, so yeah, there's definitely things like that too, where I don't necessarily need to do a lot of hands-on work per se, but it's just getting the client to understand. And sometimes that's through conversations. Sometimes that's through more of an embodied experience on the table and conversation, but bringing that client's awareness to that issue and then helping change their behavior is often a simple solution. And I think generally our, our experience in our body is just really an amalgamation of the things that we do or don't do on a consistent basis, right? That's ultimately, if we want to talk about the root cause, like that's the root cause, like what stress are you subjecting your body to that it's not tolerating? That's it. That's the root yeah. cause. <laughs> yeah, so. I, I think about that a lot now that I updated my Apple watch and I'm wearing it more regularly and got a new one and I'm looking at my sleep every morning and mm -hmm. I'm having such trouble getting eight hours of sleep every night. And so I wake up, I look at it, I see it's definitely under eight hours. And then I sort of say, Hmm, I wonder how this is affecting my body. Cause I know mm -hmm. I mean, there's just so much more sleep research out there now. And, um, I, I definitely, that's one of those things that I'm aware of the problem and I've yet to sort of feel the impact, but I know it's having an impact so it's around I'm, the corner at some point, yeah, right? I'm really trying to work <laughs> on that. Um, okay. So I sort of, I know we want to talk about case studies and I definitely want to do that before we go into some specific examples, you know, I kind of feel like you've probably heard of like the woo, right? When people are like into the spiritual, they're into the woo. I sort of feel like we can, I don't want to say divide our conversation into the 3D stuff and the sort of woo stuff that's not necessarily in the pure spiritual, it's spiritual, it's almost like applied spirituality to functional movement or something, I don't know what we would call it, um, but just this idea of a lot of the things that you talked about before, whether it was the limbic brain's impact, the nervous system in general's impact, breathing protocols, um, 
you mentioned hypnotherapy, um, maybe because somebody in your practices or some, one of your colleagues is using that with patients. I actually just finished a three session thing of that. And it was really, really interesting. Um, so I can definitely vouch for, it's a very different way to work with a therapist. And even though my initial thought wasn't to go for a physical pain issue, um, and it didn't uncover any of that, it uncovered a lot of stuff that I was not aware I had, um, yep. in my mind. So I, I can imagine for someone going through something physical, it's probably really helpful. So I guess my question is how, how do you know? when you're going to go into some of those areas, like based upon the assessment process that you just described, would it be that you do the assessment, you work on some kind of functional pattern changing, maybe you adjust their movement or workout schedule and they still report back having the same symptoms. And then you're like, okay, so now I got to go to this part of the tool belt that has all these other things. Tell me a little bit about that. And especially yeah. when you talked about some of your patients who might, or clients who might be a little like, eh, like, what do you mean? Do I, I don't know how it comes up. I don't, I'm curious. Yeah. About that. <laughs> yeah. So again, unique to the person, right? Unique to uh, the relationship that I kind of foster with that person initially, but some people come in more open to it. Some people come into it less open to those things. I would say though, that just kind of through our website and how people hear about us through referrals, most of the time, people who come to see me are a little bit more, I guess, open to that stuff in general, because again, they've already done the traditional thing, right? They've already seen a bunch of different therapists who haven't been able to help. So a lot of times people are coming to me almost out of desperation and they come into like, I'm willing to try anything now at this point. Some folks, they might not necessarily be coming in with the intention of finding that stuff, but I like to think that, again, if I've established a good amount of trust with that person, even initially, that as I'm testing, just a side note here, as I'm, as I'm like assessing, again, feeling, are the quads able to engage and I'm interacting with their, with their body through muscle testing, I'm constantly qualifying everything that I do through my intention, kind of almost like subconscious questioning um, and that's really how I think of, of muscle testing in general. It's muscle testing to me is kind of a misnomer because we're not really just testing muscles per se, like muscles are really just the tip of the iceberg. They're just kind of the slaves to what the nervous system and the skeleton allow them to do. And so, um, really what it is more is a conversation between my nervous system as the practitioner and their nervous system as the client. Oh, you and don't, you're, you don't mean you're verbally asking them for confirmation no. you when you said subconscious i missed that but now i'm getting it so yes yeah. you're tuning in on some level as you're palpating and testing yeah, kind of through my intention really and so like if i'm so let's say for example i'm testing their quads right i'm muscle testing their quads so biomechanically i want to put them into a position that's going to challenge the muscles of the quad in a way that's you know most applicable to what they're symptomatically experiencing but really what I'm doing is as I'm testing them, I'm kind of asking a question. I'm, I'm essentially asking, can your body respond to this position with this amount of force at this angle? That's more or less what I'm asking. And their body will either be strong or it won't, or either it'll either be locked up or hypertonic or overly compensatory tightness guarding, or it will you know function normally. And so as I'm testing things, I'm kind of asking that throughout 
And in terms of like navigating towards the woo stuff, I am always kind of, again, unconsciously, I'm not saying out loud because a lot of times I want, I want the intention of what I'm doing to be really clear. And I don't necessarily want their conscious perception of what's going on or their filters to prevent us from finding that stuff. So I know this is kind of a weird roundabout way of answering your question. Some clients, when I'm asking um, if it is an emotional piece, their body will let me know through testing, yes or no, like definitively, like this muscle is strong, this muscle is weak. And that response, as I'm kind of going along and having that, that conversation between our nervous systems, their subconscious basically will let me know whether or not it's safe to proceed, whether it's, it's, it's safe and they're feeling able and ready to open up that can of worms if it's there. So a lot of times, not super often, but a lot of times still when I'm testing clients and I'm, and I'm getting a sense that there might be some limbic brain or some emotional pieces kind of tied into it. I'll check it out. But sometimes the client's nervous system basically tells me, no, don't touch that right now. Like it's not safe. And I'm like, okay, noted. I know there's something there. I'm just going to shelf it for now. I'm not going to pry. Again, my goal is not to make somebody engage with stuff that they're not ready to, or feel safe engaging with. And what, well, a what lot of sign to you that no, they're not ready. They flinch or they pull back or you don't get the response from the limb. It's, it's literally that it's, it's how the muscle testing shows up when you're, when you're testing muscles, um, or doing muscle testing kind of stuff. Again, there's a lot of styles. There's like Kendall and Kendall, like graded one through five, like just strength testing. There's, you know, different forms of applied kinesiology. But again, for me, the way that I look at it is more of a, it's an unconscious, um, communication between our nervous systems folks who are really, really intuitive and really in touch with themselves and really grounded and have a lot of like sensitivity to energy stuff, which is not so much me. I'm, I'm working on that stuff more, but I actually come from this like really hyper analytical way of looking at the body, like really logical, really biomechanics, really like trying to, uh, be completely objective with stuff. But if you go down the rabbit hole enough, when you're working with pain, you realize that pain is not an objective experience. It's a subjective experience by nature. And so you have to, if you want to really help clients with their pain, especially chronic or, or mystery kind of pain, you have to get a little more comfortable. I think operating in that gray area, a little bit of that unknown and a little bit of that kind of combining science and logic and reasoning with intuitive sense and feeling and that kind of thing. And so um, when I'm testing somebody, I'm, I can make somebody test strong or weak just by my intention. Like I can literally ask the person in my head before I test them, um, show me a yes and they're strong. And then I can say, show me a no. And then they go weak and I'm like, great. Okay. Their system is responsive to my questioning. So now that will allow me to, as I'm going along to kind of ask questions as I'm testing. So again, like that quad example, can your quad respond in this position? Boom. It's nice and strong. Awesome. I cue it. There's a lot of ways to cue normal inhibition. So I cue it to, to inhibit. All right. Can you also inhibit when we ask you to No. Okay. So that lets me know that their muscle, even though it's, you know, on paper strong, it's not responding normally because it's kind of a feigned strength. It's, it's compensatory strength. And so operating with that kind of, uh, way of, of, testing the body like that with, again, with my intention, as well as actually interfacing with the body physically 
is a really, really helpful way to do that. I think that's why I, I really like muscle testing in my clinical practice. It's because to me, it feels grounding enough where I'm still working with the physical body. I'm still very much in my head of like the biomechanics, the anatomy part of things, but there's also an kind of like an energetic component yeah. to it. And so yeah. it helps, it helps if you don't feel really confident in your ability to just be totally intuitive and energy-based that you have something to ground you and actually still give you some objective, you know, measurement or test of, of what you're finding. Um, but that also gives you a little bit of leeway to, to test some of your maybe, um, analytical theories out and, and kind of combine the two. So to me, that's the best way to, to work with the body. So, um, that's kind of how it's, I know it's like a weird thing and it's, it's hard to explain like verbally. So if yeah, are listening to this, they might be like, well, what the heck does that mean? It's very much an embodied experience. Um, and so the easiest way to understand it is to feel it. Um, but yeah, like how, how somebody's testing is, is dependent on the clarity of communication subconsciously between our nervous systems, my ability to stay grounded as a practitioner and to not let my own biases and expectations and what I think it might be get in the way. It's, it's testing the client with more of an inquisitive mindset and asking, Hey, what does your body need? Or if I'm talking directly to their, you know, their subconscious essentially, or their nervous system, what is it that we need to kind of navigate towards? What are you asking for? If this is weak, you know, what do we need to do? And there's also some you know, different tactile stimuli that I can do too. Right. So again, going back to that quad example, um, it may or may not be limbic stuff. It can be more reflexive and neurological. So it could be more sensory input based. Right. So like I test their quad, it's locked up. I'm like, okay, well, they're talking about some ankle stuff. And I saw that their, their talus was a little shifted immediately when I was doing the initial intake. So let me go to the talus and provide a little bit of tactile stimuli into their, into their ankle and see if that affects the quad. And all of a sudden I might, you know, rub over the ligaments, like the outer ligaments of the ankle. That'll turn the sensory input down on mechanoreceptors in the ankle. That'll change the input that the brain is getting from the ankle. And if that changes how the quad tests, then I know, okay, there's something in their ankle that is having a sensory input effect on how their brain is able to tell the quad what to do. So if we intervene at the ankle and then I retest the quad and it tests better, that lets me know that I found something mechanically in the ankle that was having an impact on the function of the quad. That's kind of a more just body based thing. Um, but that's one way too, of just kind of using tactile stimuli as well as my intention through the testing as I go. So hopefully, again, these are really long-winded answers, but I no, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's just like it's so mind-blowing because I think, and I really want to make sure the the listener appreciates this. All of what you're doing is without words between you and the client. So all mostly, of yeah, mostly, I mean, but I'm yeah. talking to them too. Yeah, couple of things, but all of this assessing that you're doing is happening just if I'm hearing you correctly, just by virtue of their response to the stimuli that you are providing. Yes. It sounds to me like you're this really interesting blend of being a scientist and also being a healer. So I get like a scientist vibe, but I also mm -hmm. get like an Indian medicine man like vibe. Yeah. It's like <laughs> really, you know, like we're back in those times where that was you know, tactile touch and spirit and all of those influences that were so appreciated in these other cultures that, mm -hmm. you know, 
isn't necessarily as much appreciated in Western medicine, but of course we have now so much more awareness of Eastern medicine and, and lots of practitioners like yourself who have a blend. But yeah. that you talking, that's what I was seeing like this or hearing this blend of being a scientist and also being a healer, however that shows up for, you know, for someone, however, whatever thoughts come to mind there. Yeah, so, and ancient cultures too, with like Eastern medicine stuff, like obviously, a lot of those things work and help people heal. I think now though, more than ever, we actually have a scientific basis for how those things are actually working, like the mechanisms yeah. physiologically of, of why this is actually showing up. Um, and that's where like kind of the functional neurology stuff that I do really comes into play. It provides a, an actual theoretic and scientific basis for some of these other things that may seem a little woo, but it really to me that a lot of the stuff that's woo often just means the science has yet to catch up. It doesn't mean that it's invalid. It just means that science hasn't found a way to explain it yet, but that doesn't mean it won't in the future. So. No, I, I totally agree with that. So maybe now, maybe, you know, I mean, my natural inclination at this point would be to to maybe get some info, some examples from you, which is exactly right. kind of where we started when I saw your Instagram post where you were sharing about a client example. And I was so fascinated. And that's what made me respond to you and say, hey, I'd love to have you talk about this on the on the podcast. So yeah. if you have a particular case in mind, that I think would maybe, I, I love the quad example, and maybe that kind of can pick up on making it a little more real for people. Yeah. I mean, that was just like hypothetical off the top of my yeah. head, but, um, I've got a few, I actually had, um, one of my regular clients that I see on a pretty consistent basis came in this week, uh, yesterday morning, actually. So it's pretty fresh in my head. So, um, she came in and she's been having a combination of symptoms. So primary symptom was uh, TMJ stuff she's been getting. So right TMJ, a lot of tension and tightness and kind of at least low grade pain, but pain and discomfort nonetheless in her jaw. And she was also getting some right lower leg stuff. She's a good example of a client who actually, you know, walks the talk. She does all the healthy stuff. She checks most of the boxes in terms of like general healthy lifestyle. She's really into lifting. So she doesn't see me as much for like coaching and lifting kind of stuff. It's more like, Hey, when something's up or kind of body tune-ups or, you know, things like that, she was getting some right lower leg issues as well. Um, medial in particular, like she was feeling it when she was like doing squats and things like that. Um, and then she also let me know that her left hip kind of like just left hip abductors, TFL, glute medius, things like that. She was getting some discomfort over there too. So her three primary symptoms were TMJ, right lower inner leg and like ankle and then left hip. TMJ bilateral? Does it, does it uh, just the right side in this case, just the right side in this presentation. Um, and so my first thought process there is, okay, I want to get a sense of, since you've got multiple sources or kind of uh, symptoms in different parts of the body, to what extent are these symptoms even related to each other? Is there a bigger pattern that's maybe feeding into multiple symptoms that you're feeling, or are these just kind of separate issues? So uh, the first thing I did is kind of assessed her midline. That's often a really good place to start is just kind of looking at breathing and looking at midline stability with people. Like, do they have the ability to balance left and right, front to back? Um, and how is their intrinsic core doing? So uh, I started off testing some stuff and some of the objective tests, the muscle testy stuff that we looked at. Um, we found that both of her QLs were totally shot. Like they just were not responsive at all. 
bilateral QL weakness. She couldn't find them no matter what we tried to do. She couldn't get any sense of even how to engage them to begin with. Um, and then the rest of the muscular responses that we found were more uh, hypertonic. So you said not, QL, not TFL, right? Yes, QLs, quadratus lumborum. Yeah. Got it. Um, and then we also found her glute medius on both sides was completely hypertonic, locked up. Hyper. So, hypertonic, yeah. So as an aside here, just kind of from a muscle testing perspective real quick, when you're testing muscles, you basically have three responses, the potential responses and how the, how the thing's actually going to test. It's going to test inhibited, meaning that when you cue them to like push into your hand, their ability to meet the pressure that you're applying just isn't there. The neural connection between that muscle that you're testing and their brain is just, there's just a disconnect. It's just not able to fire at all. Um, the other response is going to be compensatory as well. It's going to be a hypertonic response. And that just means that the muscle has no ability to let go. So it's the opposite. It is hypervigilant and it's, it's holding on, it's stuck in contraction and it can't inhibit at all. Um, and then there's a normal response where it's able to engage fully when you cue it to, and it's also able to inhibit normally. And we know that if that's not the case, then there's something going on. There's some kind of compensatory pattern going on. Um, if you think about like, okay, if muscles were kind of stuck being hypertonic, what does that usually mean? If a muscle is hypertonic, like stuck on, it's generally indicative of, again, protective guarding, protective tension. It's usually um, what's also going to contribute to a lack of again, uh, full, full range of motion of contraction of a muscle. So a lot of times hypertonic muscles that are constantly staying hypertonic, mostly due to how we, what we subject our bodies to, right? So like for runners, a great example is like hypertonic calves. I mean, they just pound the pavement so much. So all of the input that their sensory receptors are getting in their feet and their ankles and their knees and stuff, their body's getting all that sensory information. And it might, maybe, maybe their threshold for running is like two miles and then they run three miles. So that means for that last mile, their body's relying almost entirely on compensatory mechanisms to finish that last mile because they already kind of hit their, their threshold, right? So now all of their muscles are, are hypertonic. And it's like, if they're not aware, they're not listening to their body, those calf muscles are going to start to get more and more achy. They might start to form more trigger points. The attachment points for some of those muscles might start to get achy or painful too, like um, the Achilles, for example, right? Or the plantar fascia or something like that. So um, so yeah, that's the aside of how muscles will test. So we found again, to review, we found her QLs were just totally shut off. Her mm -hmm. glute medius were really locked up hypertonic. They did not want to let go. We also found that, um, her posterior tibialis and her medial gastroc. So the inside of that right leg, which is where some of her symptoms were, those muscles were also totally locked up, like did not want to let go super protectively guarding. And then I also found some stuff. Uh, I just wanted to kind of check and see what cervical stuff was doing because she was getting some TMJ things. So left cervical rotation, totally shut off, had no strength there. And um, let's see what else we found. And the upper traps bilaterally were hypertonic. They were, they were also locked up as well. Yeah. So that was kind of some of the objective tests that we found. There were more that I could have checked out, but really when I'm initially testing stuff, I want to just test the few physical structures or muscles or joints that are probably going to be most applicable to what their symptoms are. So we tested those things and through, I'm not going to go into the details of kind of part piecing them all together, but what we found was 
what my initial question was, or how are all of these related if so? And it turns out that her TMJ was kind of really the primary driver of everything. And so the way to test that in this case was to simply have her put her hand on that TMJ, which we call that in the world of applied kinesiology, we call that therapy localization. Essentially what we're doing to my understanding is we're essentially just closing the feedback loop to that part of the body, right? When we do that, their sensory awareness of taking their hand, putting it on that spot is creating this feedback loop or, or tying the feedback loop together where their brain is picking up the signal from that. And it kind of self-regulates for a second. And so her hand on her jaw allowed everything that tested abnormally to test normal again, everything, QLs, lower leg, all that stuff. Everything came back online and tested the way it was supposed to. So that was pretty indicative. Okay. There's something happening at the, at the jaw that we need to address. And if we do that more than likely, all the other stuff is going to unwind and, and kind of normalize. Well, and is the jaw so, related to the traps and the traps, QLs, cervical rotation, glute medius, right lower leg, all of it was being affected by the jaw. And so I was like, great. Okay. So now I at least know where I want to start to explore a little bit more specifically. So that was like level one or like layer one of my assessment process, right? Just getting an idea of how all this is piecing together. So now we knew that we needed to go into her right jaw. So now my thought was, okay, most of the time when there's TMJ stuff going on, it's not a rule, but most of the time TMJ related issues are happening due to stress responses in the unconscious, right? Most people get TMJ issues. They grind their teeth at night. They clench their jaw while they're sleeping. And what's happening migraines or anything else, any other symptoms? A little bit. Yeah. She was getting like some kind of radiating stuff kind of across the top of her head, actually all the way into like her, her eye kind of, uh, she ever like minus area or anything as a result of the TMJ? Like, was she having like real 3d times when she couldn't really even function? It was Mm, not so much, not for this case. This was more of kind of a a more recent onset for her. Yeah. Um, So but she has had kind of on and off stuff with TMJ in the past. But anyways, the TMJ, like that's my first thought. Okay, if they're getting TMJ related issues, there's probably some emotional pieces here. Um, not necessarily prying for it, but it's really common. So I at least kind of thought to, to look for that. But again, I wanted to always make sure I'm never going to make an assumption. So what we first did was just go into her actual TMJ. The first thing I had her do was just bite down, right? Bite down, let's stress the masseter, the temporalis, the joint itself physically through a movement, right? Again, using movement as an interface, what happens when I test your body after you bite down? So I had her bite down and this, after she bit down her whole body, her, she tested weak to that. And it was like, okay, that means there's something going on in the TMJ. Again, I already kind of knew there was something in there, but that was our way of working in to the TMJ to actually do some treatment. So her body did not respond well to biting down. So then again, I used some sensory input stuff. Basically, just, I just did a little bit of rub over some different parts of the joint to see if that would normalize it. And it did. So now I got a little more pinpoint specific. We went in and actually started pushing on the jaw itself and pulling on the jaw in different directions to stress the ligaments and the actual fascial and soft tissue connections in the jaw. And through that, her body basically let me know again, through this intentional testing that there's actually some emotional pieces at play, kind of like I suspected. And in this case, this client knows me well, we're comfortable with each other. So her body's totally open to like, yeah, there's some stuff here and it will show it to me. 
Um, so we started talking a little bit more. I know that she's been going through some stuff. Again, this is anonymous. And she said, I could totally share this, but um, her aunt, who she is very close to, is essentially on her deathbed. Like she's going through some really rough health stuff. And she's been, my client has been really stressed about that. She had just come back last week from visiting her aunt and seeing her in the hospital and all this stuff was going on. And so it was very fresh for her. And um, come to find out that after going kind of through the, the, the Golgi receptor interface through her jaw, it led us to those emotional pieces. And sure enough, there was some pieces there tied directly to what was going on with her aunt. Now I'll also use through that, I'll, I'll use a combination of um, some like neuro-linguistic programming kind of stuff, NLP stuff, um, as well as neuro. Yes, and, and like eye direction things and stuff, as well as neuro-emotional technique um, and looking at uh, different organ reflexes and things like that, and which emotions they're generally related to. And so from the way that I work with emotions through the body in this way is Again, I'm, I'm testing her to see how her nervous system responding. So we basically found that what was going on was related to her lung, her lung reflex point. Lung is really commonly associated with like a sense of like loss, grief, sadness, yearning. And so um, what we needed to do then was find the specific piece. And in this case, it was an auditory piece um, that was relating to this feeling of sense, loss, grief, sadness, and the specific theme, we tried a few things and the specific theme that came up for her that we needed to actually work with was this idea of, I've already lost so much of my family already. There's not very many of us left. I just don't know how I can handle another one of my family members dying kind of a thing. So it wasn't specific to her aunt per se. It wasn't specific to her visiting her aunt in that moment or any conversations they had, it was very specific to this idea, this narrative that she had created around this, that I don't have much family left and I'm losing everything. So we, what we needed to do was first through this process, arrive at that realization. And then once we arrived at that realization, really the way to work with it, you can do it any, any number of ways. Um, the expression, maybe you've heard it before. You have to feel it to heal it. It's, that's really what I'm kind of working with. So once we're able to actually take whatever unconscious or subconscious material was there behind the scenes, kind of feeding into the body's symptoms, once we're able, <clears throat> excuse me, once we're able to bring that unconscious piece or subconscious piece into their conscious awareness, now we can actually sit with it and simply just feel into it, like actually allow ourselves to feel it fully. And a lot of time, it's not uncommon at all for client clients to cry in my office, start sobbing on the table, having really big emotional releases. Sometimes there's big trauma responses. So I get like convulsions and stuff on my table and all kinds of stuff. Energy and emotions clear very differently for different people. So we took a few minutes to just really sit and, and fully consciously process that. And after we were able to let that settle, we went in again and we rechecked all the different stresses in her jaw. And her body was responding much better to it. She wasn't getting weak responses anymore to the jaw. I was like, great. Okay. I think we addressed what we needed to from an emotional perspective to help the jaw respond better. So the jaw then responded better. And then I rechecked all of the initial stuff that we had started with. So her QLs, her glute meat, her lower right leg, all of that stuff, upper traps. And after we did, there was one other emotional piece too that we had to, to get into. Um, don't need to dive into that piece too, but just know that was most of what we needed to do was, was addressing the emotional stuff. 
everything that I rechecked was back online. Everything worked better. QLs, rock solid. Glute medius were able to let go. Upper traps let go. Um, everything that we had tested returned to normal. And so um, that's a good example of kind of working backwards or working through the body and working with um, an objective understanding of what's going on first, looking at the biomechanics, looking at the anatomy and what might be involved in all these pieces, but then also combining some of this um, functional neurology, applied kinesiology, um, and again, like limbic brain emotional work too, to arrive at the, again, in this case, the root cause, right? Um, to allow her body to self-regulate. I believe that ultimately that everybody's body has the ability to heal on its own kind of inherently. And so my question is always, what is getting in the way of your body being able to heal itself? Mm-hmm. A lot of times with something like this presentation, like this, the client might ask right off the bat, um, or kind of make this association of like, okay, so this emotional piece, how's this emotional piece causing my pain? It's, it's less to me in my mind, it's less of a causative factor, like a direct, like, oh, you're having this issue with your family's health. And so it's causing your lower leg to go wonky. And it's not so much that the way I describe it is that your body has only so many resources that it can allocate to any given thing. Right. And so most of the time when we're sleeping, when we're healthy, like our body's just kind of healing on its own. Mm-hmm. If you're going through a really stressful life event like that, a lot of times that stress is going to take away your body's or, or make your body have to allocate most of its inner resources to addressing that rather than addressing like your knee or your ankle or whatever. Right. Cause ultimately our nervous systems are going to prioritize relationships and how we connect with other humans more than a musculoskeletal thing. So it wasn't so much that the, the stress of her family's health stuff was causing her issues so much as it was not allowing her body to self-regulate and heal the stuff that normally just kind of goes away on its own for her. Okay. And because she's in the, you know, she's in the throes of being a regular lifter and, and, you know, fitness enthusiast and stuff, all of that stuff is still stress. Even if you love it. And even if you have a good relationship with it, it's still stress on your body. Ultimately training is. And so if you don't have the resources to respond well or, or to, to recover from that, it can oftentimes be coming from emotional sources of stress. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of kind of combining all of these different things that I've been talking about to actually get the symptoms. And lo and behold, she gets up off the table. Everything feels way better. Like tension in the jaw reduces her upper traps feel like they can relax and let go. Her breathing's better. She tried squatting and pushing into her knee and everything felt better. Her lower leg and ankle all felt good again. So, yeah, that is just remarkable. I mean, I have a lot of different questions, just, you know, one of the things I'm wondering is, is it sort of a once and done thing that once this unconscious belief is brought to the surface Mm -hmm. and the muscle testing affirms that there's a, I mean, could you say a causal relationship between the two? Does it allow the person, maybe in this case, this person, I know you just saw her this week, to um, experience long-term positive benefits from the release of that? Or do you sometimes yeah. see patterning, you know, because anybody that has a limiting belief, sometimes the acknowledgement is step one. I mean, I mm-hmm. certainly know this from my hypnotherapy sessions, you know, it's kind of this constantly reminding yourself 
of the higher level mindset that you can affix your attention to. And it, I mean, at least in my experience, it's not that those lower frequency um, mindsets aren't, are extinguished. It's more that I'm choosing to be in that higher frequency. And so I wonder for a client that you see where you have this sort of, it must be such a big reveal. Mm-hmm. They then use other tools or are they then able to self-regulate and say, I'm not going back there and additionally have the easing up of the physical symptoms that yeah. connected. Yeah. So that's, that's again, unique to the individual. Right. And I think healing often kind of happens in a cyclical nature for us. Yeah. And that's even kind of even getting into this idea of like talking about what is like true healing versus just being able to kind of address symptoms and kind of keep things at bay or get things to feel better for now so that I can manage as I go through my life. Um, us addressing things at that level wasn't necessarily, it's not going to change the circumstances of what's going on. Right. And it's, uh, it's certainly not going to make it such that, Oh, if, if, you know, if her family member or her aunt passes away, that it's not still going to hurt and it's not still going to create more stress. But in that moment, what it will do is, um, number one, again, bring her awareness to it to know like, okay, I know that there's nothing that I'm doing that's, you know, feeding into this more. It's more just that I needed an opportunity to be able to sit with this for a moment and energetically let things shift internally. And that will definitely create relatively lasting change. I mean, when we're doing these type of corrections, they, it doesn't mean that more stuff won't eventually come to the surface again, or that there's not not more layers there potentially, or that life circumstances in the future might not, you know, create new stuff for her, but, um, definitely will create symptomatic relief pretty quickly and it'll last to what extent that person needs to work with maybe similar themes in their life as they kind of go through their own layers of healing and their own healing journey. That's again, unique to the person. So some people it's like they have a huge revelation and it shifts everything for them. And it's like a life-changing event, but I would say more often than not, it's going to be, all right, that was a piece. That was a layer. Let's see how you do for a while. Does it show up again? Does it show up in a different way or whatever? So, um, the answer to your question is kind of a bit depends. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, and when you mentioned NLP, I'm a big fan of NLP and I'm fascinated by it. And I can imagine work like this helps someone sort of reframe their self-limiting belief. In this case, this woman's making it mean something about mm-hmm. her, her family, yep. as opposed to, is there an opportunity to reframe that belief about what her aunt sickness means to something else that can be a higher frequency, just appreciating family and appreciating longevity and appreciating, you know, and being grateful for the family members and that I'm part of a family and all those things. Yeah, Yeah, totally. And that I think a lot of times is, it comes down to as part of any healing does a conscious choice. Yeah. Right. Like step one of healing something is becoming aware of a belief or of a narrative that you've been attached to for a long time. That's no longer serving you, right. That's no longer actually helpful anymore. Um, All of us have all kinds of different beliefs that we're really married to. And we think are, are, they're part of our, our individual truth at the moment. That doesn't mean that's not going to change in the future based on, you know, future life experiences that change our perspective and help us see things in a different way. 
So what I like to believe is that those little bits and pieces that clients can get with me through different sessions um, are just little nuggets that are contributing to that overall more lasting growth to what extent or what percentage of, of their healing I'm contributing to, I couldn't say. Um, but I think it's, I mean, it's, it's still profound regardless of how big or small that piece might be for them. Um, and as long as people are open to, to these ideas that I'm sharing, I think they get great results from it. And it, again, it doesn't mean that we have to go really, really deep with stuff. It just means that sometimes we do and I'm yeah. open. I have the toolbox and the ability to hold space for that, but that's not what everyone's looking for. And that's not necessarily what everybody needs any given session. So, yeah, but you're going to kind of go where the evidence leads you, you know, it's exactly. not like you're coming in and seeing someone with this template. You're just kind yeah. of questioning. No agenda. Yeah. I have no agenda. I'm, I'm inquisitive when I'm working with, with clients. Again, like I said before, the question I'm kind of asking is what do you need? How can I support you right now to to give you the resources that you need to address these symptoms or to help manage even for now. Cause sometimes it is just a, it's a management thing. Right. Like another client, I think I shared a case study on Instagram too, of another client with like a shoulder repair thing that he's going through a labrum repair surgery. He's concurrently going through a divorce at the same time. So it's like, to what extent is that is the stress of going through a divorce contributing to his, his healing process a lot. Yeah. So, um, it doesn't mean that like he comes in and sees me and we do some work and all of a sudden, like going through a divorce, isn't stressful anymore. Of course it still is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but it might provide like one little like nugget of truth that might help shift again, his perspective going forward so that, you know, in the future he's less bitter or he's less resentful or he's less, whatever, you know, like it can, it can manifest all kinds of ways. Yeah, I sort of think of, I have a family member who struggles with depression and there was an acute episode of constipation that led to an emergency visit and a call uh-huh. colonoscopy and all of this. And I just kept thinking, I know this is related, you know, and it's interesting to hear you speak on it. Of course, when people are going to see psychologists and psychiatrists, how much do they appreciate that the clinical presentation of the person could be affecting them from a functional movement standpoint if they just walk in the room, right? They might yeah. not, of course, if the person is having some sort of severe, like this family member I know, uh, severe medical condition, you could potentially say, oh, and by the way, I'm also seeing a psychiatrist and I'm on psychiatric medication. All right, so now we're getting other alerts that there's potentially an overlay. Yeah, but, uh, just as maybe- and I always- I always encourage clients to, I'm not a registered psychotherapist, right? I'm a body worker. And so I have to always be mindful of not overstepping my boundaries too. And if I am getting a sense that there's something there that kind of there's this deeper stuff that needs to be addressed, I definitely encourage if they're not already to seek, you know, working with an actual registered psychotherapist as well to, to make sure that they've got somebody who is more qualified to help them work with that stuff um, to navigate that but that through the body work lens, I'm happy to address things as I'm qualified and able to do. But I always encourage that they work with, you know, the, the requisite professionals um, that they need to, to address those levels of things. Yeah, no, I think obviously that's the responsible and ethical thing to do. And I also think it gives them sort of an interdisciplinary approach to what's happening and sort of like a, a team of resources that they now have rather than just you know, a hammer and a nail type of approach. 
Totally. Wow. 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 Well, this is just amazing. I, I have so many other questions. I want to be mindful of your time and, and, you know, I, I so totally appreciate you coming on and talking about all of this. There's so many different areas where this has impact. I guess one of the things that maybe we could end on is not so much the, well, let me just ask you this one question because this actually came up when I was listening to an interview with, and I want to just bring in one specific piece to yoga, yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I'm be curious to have your thoughts on, I was listening to Jill Miller. She was on um, a gentleman's podcast. So I, don't, I don't recall his name, apologies. Um, and I had actually um, DM'd her on Instagram afterwards saying, I'm going to have Josh on my show because I know you guys are friends. And she's like, oh, yeah. Tell him I said hi. But the reason I had DM'd her is because in her interview, because of her new book, was the theme of the of the show. And she mentioned something I had never thought about, which were some of the I think she even cited some studies that had to do with um this sort of stress-induced nervous system response that oftentimes happens when people are in Shavasana. And how there's a group of people or there are certain people who at the end of a yoga class are in this relaxed, supposedly position and are so amped up. Their nervous systems are so amped up. And she even described it in such an interesting way that I'd never thought of this way of I'm laying there on the floor and my heart's exposed and, you know, my body is just open and I, you know, this vulnerability and mm-hmm. the way that she described it. And then she overlaid sort of some of the science of, of what's happening in that person's body at that moment. It just gave me such an appreciation for as a yoga teacher who in my classes might be experiencing that. So totally. I guess curious like what does that bring up for you especially as you're working with people and you're dealing with the nervous system and its response Mm -hmm. to different situations where outwardly you might be like isn't this relaxing but yet the person's experience of that yeah different well I have a lot of thoughts on that um we can pick up too and like do a part two sometime um but great uh, when I'm doing kind of an initial intake with folks um to me, as a movement professional, breathing is like the most foundational movement there is. So if I'm always looking at breath, um, how they're breathing, are they, are they mouth breathing? Are they shallow breathing? Are there parts of their, their rib cage, their torso, their axial skeleton that aren't really participating in breath? Um, and for what it's worth, when I get it, when I have kind of a suspicion that there might be some limbic brain kind of trauma stuff kind of behind the scenes with what they've got going on, usually I, I work through that or my way of kind of getting into that is through looking at the intrinsic core is through looking at breath. And so like, instead of doing like a knee extension activity to assess what's going on at the knee, I will, I, I will do some Shavasana ish kind of breathing things or I'll have them breathe into a certain part of their body. Right. Maybe like PRI has gotten really huge over the last couple of years on social media. I'm not a PRI trained person, but I'm really familiar with at least the, the lens that they're looking at things through. And so, um, you know, look, uh, they might have like a, an inability to breathe into like their, their left side more or something like that. It's pretty, that's common. There's biomechanical reasons for that, but there's could also be some other stuff. They might've had, um, you know, a, an abdominal surgery or something, a scar tissue in there that their body doesn't 
have the ability to actually get that scar tissue to move when they breathe. So there might be something there. And then if I go into the scar, there might be some limbic brain emotional stuff because of the reasons that even led to the surgery that gave them the scar. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it can really let us lead us down the rabbit hole. So when it comes to that, I think that that's a good way of actually illustrating how movement can be an interface for emotional and traumatic things like just being in a trying to access a parasympathetic state through breath. If it's inaccessible for people, really what it's doing is just highlighting stuff that's there in the subconscious that needs to be worked with. It's not that the breathing itself is dangerous. It's, it's almost kind of the same thing with psychedelic drugs too. And I don't, I'm not going to dive into all that stuff too much because it's not my area of expertise, but it's the same thing of like what a lot of times people go into like ayahuasca ceremonies or something to do is to reveal to them what's, what's deeper inside of them that needs to come to the surface to work with. And so you can do that through movement too. It's a very psychosomatic experience, especially yoga. I don't think strength training has that emphasis as much yoga. That's kind of the intention, I think, or at least it used to be. Um, and so I just kind of take a lot of those principles of working with the mind body, but I just apply them to strength training. And I just, I use my own, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. I have my own like movement protocols and progressions and regressions that I use to navigate that, but there's no right way to do that. If you're operating as a movement professional, even just looking at their, your client's body through the lens of the nervous system, how is their body processing this sensory information in their body? To what extent do they feel safe in their body as we're going through some of these things, right? And you know, how many people have this, these ideas, even just like in the strength training world of like neutral spine is the only safe place to be and your knees can't pass your toes and just all these different kind of antiquated beliefs that people yeah. hold on to. And people will go into a training session with that belief. And that belief is literally creating the, the, the body's response mm-hmm. in a negative way to, you know, that exercise. If we can create both a rational explanation to help them understand, no, that's not actually true, but more importantly, create an embodied experience that they can navigate the thing that they think is scary. And they go into it and they come out of it and they're safe. That mm-hmm. can change. That can change their belief that, that can change the lens that they're seeing things through. So, um, I hope that answers your question. I have a yeah, tendency no. to kind of go on tangents. No, so. no, it does. If for some reason, as you're talking in this last piece here, I'm also remembering, I don't remember where I heard this, um, this idea that if someone, let's say, has frozen shoulder, but then you put them under anesthesia, you can get full range of motion in their shoulder. Maybe when you said ayahuasca, it sort of reminded me as an example of like, there's different ways to sort of get to the unconscious well, maybe that's not an example of an unconscious belief, but more of like, there's some sort of functional impairment, but yet when you give the person anesthesia, you're removing that sort of policing of the movement. Yeah. You're kind of, you're kind of, to an extent, you're cutting off the nervous system's influence on that limb in that moment, right? Temporarily. But so, so really I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm working with at the level of the nervous system and the physical structure and appreciating all of the things that might be contributing to that. I mean, range of motion changes happen instantaneously. A lot of times when we do stuff like that, like frozen shoulder is a great example. Um, again, just as, as an example for that, like the first place I would start is rotator cuff muscles because generally frozen shoulder is the capsule getting over like the actual soft tissue of the capsule itself kind of being stuck in a contractile state, but also when we know that the role of the rotator cuff muscles is to centrate the ball in the socket. So if, if their muscles or if their shoulder can't move, it's likely that 
kind of a combination of the, like the capsule of the shoulder itself, plus the muscles themselves are really hypertonically locked down. So what do we need to do to unwind them? Do we need to do soft tissue work? Do we need to do, um, neurological work and kind of reflex based work? Do we need to do emotional work? It's probably going to be a combination of those, but a lot of times a session or two is all you need to, to get the shoulder to, to let go. Cause again, something like adhesive capsulitis, frozen shoulder, it's just the body's way of protecting or responding. Uh, it's a compensatory response. So what is it compensating for? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's very, I find this whole conversation so interesting because it's just, again, just this, I mean, I love that you're calling it embodied experience, you know, it's sort of a elevated way, I think holistic, but I love that embodied experience concept, I think is an even more elevated way to kind of look at somebody in this kind of full body way, embodied full body. So that, that is amazing. Well, tell, um, tell us what you, uh, what your handle is on Instagram, because I know that you're hopefully going to get back in there and (laughs) put some more more stuff in there in case people want to take a look at I think it's just integrated strength. Yeah. Integrated underscore strength, underscore training. Got it. Um, okay, I, had to, I had to look it up because I don't actually know. Um, yeah. okay. It's been I'll, so long since I've been on there. Yeah, that's okay. I'll put it in the show notes for people to, to reference. Yeah. To, to look and up. I am on YouTube as well. I have a YouTube oh, channel cool. that at this point, I've really just used it as like a free place to host, um, you know, like uh, demonstration videos for exercises nice. stuff for clients homework. Okay. I haven't really had the time or energy to really invest in growing the channel because it's really hard to balance running a clinical practice and being an influencer. I'm not really, my intention yeah. isn't to be an influencer so much as just, I want to kind of get these ideas out there more. So at yeah. the very least that's, that's important to me. So I've kind of refound the motivation to do that. Um, but the intention going forward is to actually make more long format content going forward for YouTube, but I just <laughs> have to figure that out as yeah. I go because it's tough to balance all this stuff there's just a lot of life happening for me right now so of course well I will definitely have you on for a part two and I would love to be part of your platform strategy to kind of cool. get, get the word out about things uh because yeah. like this is this is an area that I'm super passionate about and I think it sort of gives you know most of if not all of my listeners are yoga teachers and I think this is a whole area that they don't get a lot of background in and certainly yeah. not fresh clinical work, you know, as yeah. opposed to training where things are sort of taught in a very academic way. So I mm-hmm. love the conversation. And especially as you talk about different muscles, I mean, I focus a lot on anatomy in my teaching. So I think this sort of covers as the parts are part of what you're looking at. It sort of covers that too, but goes into so many different areas. So I really yeah. appreciate I will definitely connect with you for a part two and um, have a wonderful weekend. And this will actually post on Monday. So I'll send you the Great. link. I'll send Great. you the link on Monday and I'm super excited to share it. So me too. Excited to listen to it. It's always a little weird listening to your own voice. But, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I did not listen to any of my episodes because it is kind of strange. Um, it is fun though, too, just to kind of hear, hear things back again. So yes, take yeah. it. Take it. But, all right. Well, Josh, thank you so, so much. And I will talk to you soon. I'll be checking you out on the IG there. Cool. Right on, Karen. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And the fact that you're still here and still listening is not lost on me. So thank you so much. 
couple of things. If you have any questions, please contact me. Send me what your questions are directly to my Instagram DM. You can find me there at Bare Bones Yoga. The next thing I hear so much from yoga teachers that they want to be confident. They want to feel more confident. They don't want to have that nervous feeling in their stomach when they get up to teach. They don't want to stumble over their words. They want to create sequences fast and not spend so much time writing out their sequences and practicing their sequences. And they so much want to just walk around the room rather than being tied to the mat and practicing the entire sequence with their class. If any of this hits home for you and you want to develop into a more confident, authentic teacher in the next 30 days, I want you to DM me, confident teacher, heard it on the podcast, and I will show you exactly how you can get there. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next episode.